Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. Welcome to our next episode of Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to be your host today. Just a reminder, you can really help us out by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else that will take a rating or review. It really helps out for the people that don't already know about this podcast. For the people that aren't already in the group, it'll help pop up in their suggestions in the health and wellness and fitness categories. And we just never know when somebody needs to hear one of these stories, when somebody may resonate with one of these stories. And you never know, we might be able to save a life. We may be able to connect with someone and it might just hit someone in, in a positive way and we can continue helping people. So that's the goal here to continue breaking the stigma, to continue shattering the stigma, shattering. I'm learning my words today, uh, but that's that's the goal here today is we just want to continue helping people. That's the goal in every one of these episodes. So please leave a rating, leave a review. And I know I've said this before, but I promise this is the last episode uh, that you will hear where I will not be reading those ratings and reviews. So after today, on the very next episode, I am going to 100% be uh, reading those ratings and reviews on air live. So if you left one or if you're leaving one, you'll be able to get shouted out and we appreciate you. So thanks again, if you already did that. And if you haven't, please just take a few minutes. It really helps a lot. So today's episode is going to be another local interview, someone that I've had the pleasure of meeting in person, someone that I've met through the recovery community. If you listen to one of our more recent episodes with uh, Carrie and Tara. I always, I constantly want to call them Kara and Terry. I don't know why. It just those those four letter names. I constantly want to mess them up. But if you listen to Carrie and Tara, this is one of the names that we shouted out. If you're in the Stang Fit ODAT page, you might have even seen him in the pictures because he was at the race. He was a supporter when we did the Couch to 5K. So today we're going to have on the, on the show, we're going to have Dave. How are you doing today, Dave? All right. How are you today, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking yeah. the time today. Thank you for being flexible on this schedule. Today hey, you're been welcome. crazy. We're, uh, we're doing back-to-back interviews. I just got off with one, just saved it, and now we're getting to do another one. So having a lot of fun today. I'm getting to talk a lot of sobriety, a lot of fitness today. So, you know, this is definitely a night that I'm going to make it to bed sober. And I'm very happy about that. And it's, it's because of awesome people like you out here taking the time. Uh, speaking of, you have tons of recovery time. I absolutely love it. And it's just, it's so cool. We're going to get to really talk about a lot of fun stuff today. You also Thanks. have a unique recovery date. And so, yeah, just all, all things great today. But before we get into your story, why don't you start us off by telling us uh, who you are, where you're from, and what you do for a living? Uh, well, my name is David. I am from East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Uh, currently, I uh, originally grew up in East Orange, New Jersey, and lived in uh, Staten Island for a while, which is where I got sober and uh, worked in uh, Manhattan for many years. Uh, and I moved out here to go to graduate school and uh, wound up working a variety of jobs. Uh, and then uh, today I work as a uh, case manager, uh, CRS, uh, Certified Recovery Specialist, 
up at Allentown CTC. I just started the job a, a few days ago, and I'm working with uh, folks who are going through a, a, a methadone treatment program. Nice. Well, hopefully it was a, a good thing that you're starting the new job, and, and it's something that, that you wanted to do as far as like the location you're at. I know the field you're in is what you want to do, but mm -hmm. hopefully where you're at is what you wanted to do. So congratulations on the Thank new you. job. Hope everything works out for you. And so, yeah, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and dive right into your story. Why don't you go ahead? And I know you had your first experience with drinking around the age of 15, 16. So in as much detail as you want to go in, why don't you go ahead and summarize the first 14 years or so of your life? Okay. Um, well, I was told a long time ago that I should start my story off with the fact that I am adopted. Um, I was uh, a victim of uh, pretty awful child abuse uh, as, as an infant. Um, won't go into details. I have um, I have essays written about it, but um, my biological mother, uh, well, she's the one being blamed for it. She's the one who uh, who died in 1980. I never met her, but I did meet my biological father, and he blames everything on her, which I don't think is entirely fair. Uh, but he's gone now too, so you know he you know had no way to find out the truth. But I was um, basically beaten to within an inch of my life. Um, as an infant, had every major bone of my body broken and uh, was saved by the neighbors when they heard me crying and uh, uh, brought me over to um, the emergency room. Uh, the uh, police were called. They brought me to the emergency room in North New Jersey. And at that point, I was, um, I was uh, noticed by a doctor in the ER, uh, Dr. Kessler, who later founded the Kessler uh, Institute in New Jersey. And uh, he actually uh, saved my life. He, uh, he uh, told the police and told the child services that I was abused and I should never go back to my parents. And he took custody of me. That led me to being uh, in the foster care um, where I was uh, noticed by friends of my parents, the people who did adopt me, who had just adopted a child. They felt they could not, um, I, adopt me yet, although they considered it, um, but told my parents about me, not, you know, even, you know, trying to give them any idea to adopt me or take me as a foster child. My parents who already had uh, uh, four children of their own decided to take me in. And uh, my father, um, about an hour before I came home, my father was telling my uh, three brothers and sister, don't get too attached. He won't be here too long. He's just a foster child. And uh, within an hour or two of my getting in the house, my father said, we need to adopt him, make him part of the family. And that's how I became part of, uh, part of the family that I grew up in, the family that I consider to be my uh, real family. Uh, wow. My biological family is more of an accident of birth. That's very, that's, that's a powerful start to the story. And it just like, it really, it, it gets everything going at such a young age. And it's, it's a lot to take in. Uh, yeah. for such for such a young child and to you know have to hear some of this stuff in in your adult years as well i can only imagine how that was to process and take some of that in as well for you yeah unfortunately my parents waited until i was uh, about 17 or 18 to tell me well you know all the details i i always knew that i was adopted but didn't know the details okay until i was about 17 uh, 18 years old um but I believe that when you're adopted, no matter how good the adoption is, and I, 
I, I had a great experience with it. Um, I would not trade my family for anybody or any other family. Um, but no matter how it happens, how, how it works out, you get the feeling you're dropped into somebody else's life and never quite fitting in anywhere. Um, even though my family, you know, I don't think treated me any different from anyone else in the family, but it was, I had red hair. They didn't, um, they were all good at sports. I was not, you know, things like that. Um, and, uh, I always look, looked up to my older brothers. They're much older than I was. Um, and I looked up to them. I wanted to be like them. I idolized them and still look up to them today. And um, like I said, I wasn't very good at sports, very awkward, socially awkward. Didn't quite feel like I fit in anywhere. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I had people telling me all the time, where'd you get that red hair from? You know, <laughs> nobody, in, <laughs> nobody in your family has red hair. And I have to explain that I was adopted. Um, How many redheaded stepchild jokes did you have to hear as a kid? More as an adult. Oh, really? Yeah, more as an adult <laughs> than, than as a kid. I heard plenty of other jokes as a kid. Like uh, I had pink hair, um, carrot top, red, you know, things like that. Um, a few other things I'm not going to repeat here. Oh, kids um, are mean. Yeah, I... Where I grew up in in, in East Orange, I was um, I didn't have a, a whole lot of friends. There weren't a lot of kids around that that were my age. Uh, it was kind of a rough neighborhood uh, where I lived, and I really didn't want to, you know, go outside after dark or anything. So I didn't have a whole lot of friends. And um, my older brothers again, I idolized, and when I saw them drinking beer and all this stuff, and uh, you know, smoking points and, and which they would do occasionally. I looked up to that. I thought, now, how wow. much older are they? How many years? My next oldest brother was nine years older. Um, he uh, he passed away, unfortunately, but he was nine years older. I have another brother uh, who's 11 years older and one who was, let's see, about, uh, about 14 years older than I am. Okay, so they're significantly older. Yeah. This isn't just a couple of years. Yeah, and then I have a sister who's 16 years older. So, you know, right now they're all pushing 70 or, or, or over and I'm still in my 50s. So I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> um, but um, I looked up to them. Um, and uh, because the school system wasn't good where I live in uh, East Orange, my parents sent me to a uh, private school. I also have uh, dyslexia. And that was also a, a, another problem in school. I had trouble reading. And they sent me off to a uh, private school that was uh, very uh, religious. Um, I am religious as well, but I'm a, I'm a Lutheran, pretty mainstream Christian. This was more fundamentalist. And um, they would teach us, uh, I remember they would teach us how to be good you know, men and women as, as we grew up. And there was a, uh, a book that they had. And this book had a picture of what you should look like as a, as a good, you know, religious Christian man and what you should look like, what you should not be like. And the good picture was somebody who was carrying a Bible. He had his chest pumped out. He was wearing high waters. Um, his shoes were shiny. And, uh, you know, all the, you know, he was, a, you know, the model teenager. And all the teenage girls were clutching their Bibles looking at, Adam with like loving eyes 
And then they had the picture of what we shouldn't be, which was, uh, this is the 70s, remember, a, a hippie, you know, with uh, no shoes on, the cutoff jeans, the long hair and the beard with a beer in his hand, days look in his eyes. And I'm like, that's my older brother, Pete. I want that. <laughs> I want to be him. And, uh, and uh, a few years later, I was. I was that person. Um, when I started drinking, I first um, first started drinking, uh, you know, here and there, uh, you know, at a family party or something. Somebody have a beer and let me have a sip here or there. No big deal. Didn't like the taste of it very much. And then um, I remember going on a ski trip with my older brothers in 1978, uh, very end of the year in 78. That was uh, uh, New Year's. And um, I remember drinking a little bit then. I had some uh, seven and sevens with that light um and a couple of gin and tonics and uh, mostly some beer and some wine still not a lot didn't get really drunk got a good buzz on and i liked it and i felt like i fit in i was with my older brothers and their friends all much older than i was and here i could do something where i could keep up with them yeah i could fit in with them i kept up with them and i was uh one of the gang and that felt really good now, I really didn't drink again until that April, uh, 1979. And um, it was spring break. We were off from uh, school for a week. It was right after Easter. And uh, I was going down to uh, Maryland with my older brother, Bob. And he had a, he had a 200 SX, uh, a, a Datsun, really nice car, fast. And we were zipping down 95. Um, I don't know how fast we uh, we were going, but uh, it was exciting. And he hands me a joint and a beer on that trip. And I picked it up and didn't put it down again for 10 years. Uh, it wow. was boom, like that. And I remember even before we got down to Maryland, um, he, he, he taught me how to roll a joint. And you were only 16? I was 16. And he taught me how to roll a joint. He had me, uh, we were drinking beers in the car and smoking joints and things like that. And, and I remember teasing him saying, um, give me that joint. I really need it. I really need it. And he said, very seriously, he said, the day you need it is the day that you need to stop doing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he was right. That was the day that I needed to stop doing it. But I didn't know that. If my brother had known that I was about to engage on a 10 year uh, trip of alcoholism and, and the drug abuse, he would have slapped those, that beer out of my hand. He would have slapped the joint out of my hand. He would have slapped some sense in, into me as he never ever intended for any of this to happen. He was generous. He wanted to share. He thought it'd be fun. Now, is it safe to assume that with, with the way you're saying that this, mm -hmm. your brother is not someone who dealt, your brother is not one of us. No, he's not one of us. Never was. So he was, he was your typical, you know, I can just Familiar. drink. I can just drink. I can just mm -hmm. smoke some weed and I yep. can, I can do this responsibly and normal. And this isn't, this isn't going to control or run my life. Yep. Like he was, he was just having, he was literally just having a good time. He was having fun and he wanted to share it with me. And, uh, you know, again, if he had known, what I was about to fall into, he would have, he would have stopped the car and he would have taken all that away from it. Um, it would have been too late. 
<laughs> I know now it would have been too late. Once I had that in my system, I was gone. It was like, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, faucet gets turned on and then the handle breaks off. Oh, wow. Now you can't turn it off again. And um, I don't think I've heard that one before. I like that. That, um, that first week that I was down in Maryland, I, I had just started drinking. Um, I, I killed a good part of a case of beer within a, uh, two days. And I had just started. Plus, I smoked up a lot of his pot. I found some pills. I took some of those. That's, that's when I started doing this fun thing that I did when I would um, take pills and then try to figure out what they were afterwards. Holy shit. Yeah, so, yeah. That somebody had them, they offered them to me. I would take them and say, oh, what is that? They'd be like, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll uh, like it. <laughs> um, and if you would have taken the wrong pill, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Exactly. I didn't care about that. I was 16. I was going to live forever. And, and at first, it was fun. That first week was a blast. I got, well, almost the, almost the whole week. I, I did get really, really, really drunk. He, uh, my brother Bob had a party. And there are going to be some girls there my age. And I was all excited. I wanted to pregame. And I actually passed out before the party started. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of a story of my life. I, I really didn't come to and I was like hammered. And I think I blacked out during that time as well. Um, but that's really what that kicked it off. And for 10 years, I basically drank and drugged whenever I could, as much as I could. Whenever I had alcohol, that was my first love was alcohol. I would drink until it was gone and then go out and try to get more if I could. If I got sick and I threw up, great. I cleared the field. You know, I catch my breath a little bit and I go back and look for more. Um, alcohol was, again, was was, was my first and, and uh, last love always. Um, on top of that was pot. I smoked a lot, a lot of pot. Um, I smoked pot every day for about seven or eight years, every day, wake and bake, you know, uh, all day long, as much as I could. Um, I smoked pot even when I was working on uh, Wall Street um, after college. And that was, uh, yeah, that was dated because it was the 80s. It was Wall Street and there's a lot of coke. Um, I was going to say they're doing they're doing a lot worse in there. Yeah. And there was a lot of cocaine. But let me backtrack a little bit. So um, I, I got through high school drinking and drugging whenever I could. Um, there was a, a liquor store near my house that uh, we used to go to all the time. Uh, we'd have Sunday dinners. And uh, you know, if my brothers couldn't uh, find a place to park the car and my father couldn't find a place to park the car, they'd park out front and send me inside with money. And I was like 10 years old. Then I'd go in and buy a bottle of wine. And they knew me there. And I point, hey, well, you know, my, my uh, father's out there. They'd be like, fine. Um, and they give me the uh, give me the bottle. So when I started drinking myself, I would just go in and buy quarts of beer. I was like 16, 17 years old. They didn't care. Um, wow. I buy quarts of beer. I buy whiskey in there. Um, I bought a keg in there once when I was uh, when I was in, in a college frat. And I was like 18 years old. The drinking age was 19 at that time. And they never checked. They just knew me. Um, That's insane so, to think about, like the the time, you know, that time of the I don't I, I don't I don't want to date you again here. But <laughs> that that time of like in the 70s, like just the way the way things were where you could be 
10 years old and grabbing a bottle of wine because you can point to your parents outside like that would i mean today if someone tried that shit there would be those don't not only would it not work but the parents would probably get arrested for even trying some shit like that if they actually even knew like it's just and and you know people can say what they want about today's society but that's one of the things that i definitely think that we got right right now is Mm -hmm. that we're at least trying to enforce and protect a little bit more and we're not just letting it go with oh those are your parents or this and that like i used to hear stories uh with with my old boss and you know living in like a country area back town and like you know he in in those same time frame like he was drinking in like the 70s and 80s and like he would get pulled over and the the cops would stop him and they would follow him back home mm-hmm. and they would just tell the parents, Hey, we just caught your kids out drinking or, you know, this and that instead of like getting a DUI. And it's like, you know, some people might think, Oh, that's cool. Well, it kept the kids out of trouble, but then, you know, how many times do the kids also, and you know, not to go dark for a second, but we got to face reality. Mm-hmm. How many times do those kids realize that, Oh shit, we just got away with that. And then they go do it again. And then unfortunately mm-hmm. next time, it's not just getting pulled over for speeding, you know, next time they, they hit another car and, you know, we can all use our imaginations and realize what can happen then. And I mean, we've all seen those, those commercials. We've all seen those movies. We've, we, we probably all even know someone who has been the unfortunate victim. And the, the fact of the matter is too, how, how often is it, us as the drinker, us as the the drunk driver, how often is it ever that we are the ones to get hurt in that situation? No, we're very, the ones who walk away. You should. Yeah, we're very few and far in between because the the only, and I, I use this word very, very loosely, but the only benefit to drinking at that point is that our reaction time is so delayed that we don't tense up our bodies, which just prevent the damage in those car accidents. And again, I'm using the word benefit very loosely there. But yeah. that's that's the only reason a lot of times, too, that we're not injured in those scenarios is because our bodies just do whatever they're naturally doing. But it's just it's it's terrifying. And we're not the we we are the ones who walk away. We're not the ones who a lot of times our lives are altered for the worse from that point, aside from, you know, criminal charges. And even then, how many times do people get away with those scenarios? You know, it's there's no amount of jail time that can compensate for for a child not having their parents for the rest of their life because, because of someone else being irresponsible. But anyway, so aside from that, so now you're a teenager and you're able to just go buy whatever you want, whenever you want, no one's caring. They recognize you. Dave can just do whatever he wants. Well, are you also maintaining, and I apologize if you already said this and I missed this, but how, how are your grades when, while you're in school, are you, (laughs) are you, are you doing well in school? Is this one of those like, well in school um you were getting by though i I was getting by you know you know thing is i couldn't do exactly whatever i wanted if my mother ever caught me doing anything like that if she had known that i was drinking at a young age if she knew i was doing that and going into that liquor store and buying buying quarts of beer she would have called the cops herself okay so that wasn't a decision that she was supporting she definitely oh no 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 she is I I would probably not be here today. Uh, no, she was she was not a big proponent of this. Um, she was uh, she had raised already raised uh, four other children, and uh, you know she kind of knew the deal. And um, she she was zero tolerance. 
Um, so I was very, very uh, careful about that. And so none of your older brother, and you, I know you said that one older brother that was in the car with you isn't one of us. So I, I would also assume that none of the other siblings as well? I don't know. I don't believe they were. Uh, uh, the one who what, passed away um, was in a car accident, but he fell asleep at the wheel. There was no alcohol or drugs involved. It was so uh, sorry to hear that. Thank you. It was uh, too many, uh, too many late night, too many late, late nights at work, too many double shifts. That shit's. Uh, driving tired is just very driving dangerous. tired. I, so I fell was... asleep driving one time and I woke up on my car was on top of a median. Yeah. I mean, I, I walked away unscathed, but it was, it was absolutely terrifying. Drive driving tired is, I mean, it only takes just, just like with driving impaired, it only takes a second and it can just, it's all gone. Yeah, there is, I believe there, there is some alcoholism in the family, but as far as I know, none of my older brothers or sister are, uh, are, uh, or one of us. Um, I did hear the story about a, a great uncle, my uh, grandmother's brother, who um, was in World War One and was in trench warfare and had came back with a bad case of PTSD, but nothing, you know, no injuries or anything. Um, and uh, the day he got off the boat in New York City to come home, he got drunk and fell down an elevator shaft. Wow. And um, far as I know, he never really uh, held a steady job after that, after the war, and he died in the 50s. And, um, you know, my mother, uh, we didn't really talk about it a whole lot, but you know, towards the end of her life, my mother shared about um, wanting wanting him to come and play with her when uh, her and her friends when uh, they were uh, kids and uh, seeing him in the dark, you know, in, you know, middle of the day, in the dark, in the living room, in the easy chair with a bottle. Um, so I can assume that it's possible he might've been an alcoholic. Now, when you're, and I know since you're a recovery specialist, you might be able to answer this question. If not, it's okay. But when you're looking into the whole, like alcoholism and substance abuse, being mm -hmm. hereditary, being genetic, when you try and think of things like that, for, for that to be true and for that to make sense, it would have to be for your actual blood family that you yeah. share DNA with. So oh, like hy hypothetically, if your adopted family mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to use them as an example because they're not, so I don't feel like I'm saying anything bad here, but like had your adopted mother and father been alcoholics and drug addicts and all of your brothers and sisters, had they been, that wouldn't really apply to you other than you might've been around it and seen it your whole life, but it wouldn't apply to the whole like genetic disorder However, if your family that you were never around, mm -hmm. if they suffered from it, it might have passed on to you. Is that, am, am I understand? Is that how that yeah. would work? I would assume so. That's that's my assumption because my uh, biological mother was a drug addict and she died of an overdose as far as I know. Okay. Um, she died of on uh, prescription drugs. Uh, she had mental health concerns as well. And back in the 60s and they gave her a whole bunch of uh you know pills and said go and go and sin no more and um that she really went downhill and uh, uh from what i was told to become a, a serious drug addict um towards the end of her life um and uh, and it's the uh, drugs that killed her and for me i'm an alcoholic and addict uh my uh, my my ex-wife has struggled with this disease and my daughter is also in uh, recovery herself Oh, wow. So, you know, so I can see it very clearly through, through my own family. Well, definitely, definitely God bless 
uh, and anybody who you just mentioned who is in recovery, especially your daughter, you know, the young, the young ones, those are the ones, you know, just it's, but thank, thank God that she is in recovery. And I'm sure that that's, that's probably a whole another conversation in which the two of you get to share those moments and whatnot. And, you know, at any point during this, during this interview, if that's something you end up talking on, cool. If not, I completely understand as well. Um, but that's, that's just, you know, shout out to her for finding recovery and, you know, definitely prayers and well wishes and positive vibes for however much time that she has in, in her program. So I am very proud of her. Uh, she is, uh, she, she's an amazing person has really come a long way. That's super. That's super blessing. Now, where, where does this kind of lead you now into your, into your later teenage years? And where does this kind of launch off for you? Well, teenage years, of course, uh, high school, I just drank and drugged as I could, you know, there's a, uh, there's money issues there too. And, you know, the availability and, uh, sometimes if, you know, one of my brothers came, we were able to get me some drug, uh, some drugs and pot. really, they didn't get me anything else, uh, get me pot or something that was fun. Or I've had friends who had pot. I had one friend who's, um, whose father got pot for him and he used to share with me, which was very nice. Um, <laughs> Such a nice fellow. Yeah, yeah, so nice. And um, that went on until I got into college. And um, I got into college. My father was a college uh, professor at, um, at Uppsala College in uh, East Orange in New Jersey. And so I didn't have much of a choice on where to go, but I did go for free. It was nice. Uh, but I did manage to uh, talk my parents into letting me live on campus, which was uh, a whole block away from my house. Um, but I wanted the experience and uh, moving in on campus was really a big change for me because my drinking went from here to here. Uh, and I got involved with a fraternity. Um, and uh, our biggest thing there was uh, drinking, uh, drinking and smoking a lot of pot. And wait, wait, wait. Fraternities drink? Yeah, what? yeah I mean, go figure. Yeah. Oh man, and I never went to college, but shit, I might have missed out back in back in my day. Then shit, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, I I partied. Yeah. I I I went to lots of frat parties mm-hmm. and lots of college parties, and never went to a single class. So yeah. go go figure. I was that guy. I went to class most of the time. Now, sometimes I went when I shouldn't have, but most of the time I went to class. And uh, actually, I got um really carried away really quickly during college. And I won't go into all the Tory details, but, you know, usually in college, you get interested in women, you want to get interested in all kinds of activities around the school. You want to do this, you want to do that. I did my freshman year. I was involved with the uh, college newspaper. Um, But really by my sophomore and junior years, I was just all into the drinking, all into the party scene um we used to uh we were in east orange uh we could run right down park avenue and be in the uh, housing projects in newark in about 15 or 20 minutes and we could buy anything down there um i I have a lot of stories from going down to the projects in newark um one story was I, i gave a friend of mine a ride and um uh he he said you know I'm going to go out and buy. He called them one-ons. I'm not ever really sure what they were. He said they were Sebas and Codeine. And this is one of those cases where I took pills and didn't really know what they were. And I didn't care. And we drove down into Newark to buy these, um, buy these pills off the street. He said he knew a 
place to go. I, oh, sure, this is fine. Yeah, I'm going to you know, buy uh, pills off the street and just take them, not, not know what they are, go down to, you know, uh, you know, the projects in Newark, a couple of clean cut white guys, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in an old, uh, in that case, it's all Toyota. I have gone down there in an old, uh, old Thunderbird, <laughs> like one of those old 1980 Thunderbirds, looked like a police car. Um, and people look at us like, hey, what are you doing down here? But this time I went down on my old Toyota and uh, this is a great car. It was smoked all the time, ran rough and had, uh, it had actually been on fire at one point, but I bought it from, uh, I was, I, I bought it when I was like 20 years old or 19 years old from this girl who was wearing short shorts and an altar top. And I'm like, sure, here, <laughs> you know, I'll buy it. Um, but, you know, I drove down with this car. And I had this buddy in the car with me. He pulls up to the guy on the street, calls him over and uh, snatches the pills out of his hand, takes a handful of pennies, throws it in his face and tells me to drive. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, just get out of here. And I put my foot down on the gas and just floored it, which was not very fast in that car. And um, I heard pop, pop, pop. And the uh, back window go, it disappears. And... Um, get home the back window's gone there's a hole in my roof and my mother's like what happened and i said oh a, a, a truck drove by and I, you know a rock came and hit the windshield yeah, back uh, window she's like okay um she didn't see the hole in the roof somehow i had to just patch that up for you know when it rained but i never did go down there again with this kid i did go down there again <laughs> a few days later but not not with the same kid did he rob um, someone else? Why were you just getting randomly shot at? I mean, I know it's in the hood, yeah. but I don't know. I, I guess because the guy was pissed, you know, he had a big bunch of pennies thrown in his face and the guy ripped them off for his drugs. Oh, okay. I misunderstood. I misunderstood yeah. that part. Okay. Yeah. yeah the, guy, the guy ripped off his, uh, his pills and ripped off his drugs. I mean, we had a good time, but I didn't oh, talk man. to this kid again. Yeah. Smart, smart move. Yeah. yeah. He almost got you killed. Yeah. Yes. I was like, okay, let's not do that. But, but I did go down there again a few days later in the same car with other friends and did a legitimate, you know, transaction. But I thought later, gee, I wonder, <laughs> wonder if that guy's still around. <laughs> um, so it took me places like that. Um, I was in the housing projects and at three o'clock in the morning, one of my buddies went inside, which you never do. And um, it was, was in there for like half an hour and I was like oh my god am I gonna have to go in after him and uh there are people staring at me and uh like wonder what I'm doing there in this car room the car kept stalling out so I had to keep revving up the engine <laughs> and they were like checking me out and like I'm in big trouble fortunately we got away with that and uh, many other uh, incidents like that um I got through college managed to graduate um uh, took me five years but I did work the whole time too I had a uh, you know, full and part-time job. Um, so I got through college, uh, needed somewhere to work. So of course, with a college degree, I went to work for a guy painting houses for the summer. And now, I figured were, out, you, were you literally painting houses or I like- I was literally I watched, painting I houses. I watched the movie, The Irishman, where you, mm -hmm, and no. I'm using my air quotes here, you weren't painting houses, were no. you? No, I was not. I was. <laughs> I knew people who did stuff like that, but I never got involved with it. Right. I, 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 I could go on and on with these stories, but I, I did know people who did stuff like that. 
Oh, I was acquainted with them. I knew them. I knew I didn't want to get on their bad side. You know, you so know I a few house painters. I did not want to do business with them. Oh man. I knew a few, few of them uh, after I got sober who went to meetings too, because I got sober in uh, Staten Island. But that's uh, that's for later. Shit, I, I I knew. See, I already knew this is where we were going to. I told you this. We could, yeah. you could. I think I talked to you. I, I hate to pause mm-hmm. in the middle of your story here, but I think I said this when when we met that first time, and we talked for like five minutes. Yeah. I had known you for a total of like five minutes, and I was like, shit. Would you be willing to share your story on the podcast? Because I can already tell that you're the kind of guy that is going to have stories for days. Like this is, yeah. just, and I'm not so so far in. You know, we're not even 45 minutes in, and you have not this. I mean, you're you're not. I don't even know if you're 20. I don't even know how old you are in this. I'm story. about 20. I'm yeah, about 20. Shit, you're not even 21, and listen to these stories. Holy shit! But let's go. Um, Let's see. So I, I got through college. So by then I was about 21, 22. By the time I was done uh, done with college, it took me to a lot of places that I didn't need to go to. Um, you know, after hours clubs where there were mountains of cocaine on the tables. I was told not to look at anybody following the bread trucks in Newark at uh, four o'clock in the morning and stealing the bread and milk off the porches. So it was something to eat, um, you know, stuff like that. Um Got me pulled over one night with a hefty bag in the car. Uh, I had uh, two, uh, myself and two of my friends in the car. And it was in a place in New Jersey that was notoriously racist. It used to be a sundown town, you know, get out of town before sundown. And um, it's still uh, at, at that point in the 80s, it was very, very racist town. The cops were well known. And it's right next to, a, to a East Orange, which is very diverse. And um, we got pulled over one night and the cops went nose to nose to us and also came in right behind us and boxed us in. And fortunately I was sober because I would not have had anything to drink or smoke because we had a hefty bag in the car and the hefty bag was filled. It wasn't with laundry, uh, probably filled about 20, uh, 20 years. And um, the cop pulled us over and started asking us questions like, where are you going? What are you doing? Shine lights around inside the car wanted to know what was in the hefty bag. And fortunately, the guy who owned the bag had put laundry over the top of it. And uh, so, so oh, oh, it's my laundry. We, we go to college over here. We're, we're just going home. And um, shine the light on myself and my, uh, and my friend next to me who were white. And the guy in the back is a black guy. And as soon as they shine, uh, shine the light on him, they said, oh, you, you, you guys can go. And I'm like, great, thank you. And I figured they're... They were looking for three white guys and we didn't match the, uh, d- the description of somebody who was doing something they weren't supposed to be doing in the area. Maybe they were casing houses, maybe they robbed somebody. Um, but I was really surprised because these cops usually go in the other direction in this town. So they're letting us go. And my brother, my uh, buddy who uh, owns the, uh, who owned the, the uh, hefty bag turns to the cop just as he's leaving and said, why'd you pull us over? I'm like, what? I'm like, what? What are you doing? It looks like you froze there. Can you still hear me? Yeah, we're good. Okay, good. Um, he uh, he says, why um, why'd you pull us over? And uh, the cop turns back, and I'm like, shut up. What's wrong with you? The cop says, oh, your headlight is out. Is that dim? 
And I said, officer, thank you very much. We'll go take care of that right away. And we got out of there. But um, I was uh, lucky that night. I was lucky many, many nights. In fact, the only time I was ever pulled over for DUI, and I drove drunk many, many times. Uh, the only time I, I got pulled over was um, uh, there was a cop that had been out drinking with the night before at a strip club. And so I knew him. We were friendly. And he said, this is in 86. He said, I'm going to follow you home. If I see you driving again, that's it. You're done. Um, if it had been 87, he would not have. No way he, he would have let me uh, get away with that. Why? What's the difference? In 87, New Jersey had stronger laws. Okay. So, yeah, the, the DUI laws were much more stringent by 87. In 86, when he pulled me over, the laws had not gone into effect yet. Okay. So after college, I worked at a, um, a guy painting houses. I worked there about two weeks, and he decided he was going to Maine with his girlfriend. And I wound up uh, with no money and no job for a while and too much pride to ask for help. And wound up homeless for a couple of weeks. Uh, not a couple of weeks. A couple of days. I wound up living in somebody's basement for a few weeks. Um, but I was sleeping in my car for a couple of days. Um, didn't have any money. Had uh, half a jar of peanut butter and some stale bread. And that was about it. And uh, I finally was able to, a friend of mine found out, let me stay in his basement. And I sold my car to make some money. And as soon as I had money in my pocket, and all this buddy gave me was a basement to stay in. So I was starving, didn't have anything to eat. As soon as I had money in my pocket, you would think the first thought would be go out and get a decent meal. My first thought was go to a liquor store. <laughs> and I did. And I went out and I got some beer and I got a bottle of whiskey. And then I got some, uh, uh, some ramen noodles. And that was, that was my, my dinner. Um, so that's the way that I thought back then. I've been homeless. I've been starving. I've been dead broke. As soon as I had money, first thing I did was go out and get drunk. Not, ha not have a, a decent meal. And I think about that a lot. That reminds me I am an alcoholic. You know, that's where my priorities lie, um, is uh, getting drunk. Food comes secondary. And that was the theme for the next few years. I did wind up getting a job on Wall Street. Um, a, a buddy of mine was working at a company on uh, Lower Manhattan and uh, got me a job. And I started making money. I, I had an apartment. Um, and I discovered uh, that there's a lot of cocaine on Wall Street. I lost the apartment. Um, when I lost the apartment due to uh, not paying and having trouble with the landlord, the landlord wanted, wanted me out of there anyway because he wanted to rehab the place and double the rent. But I had a lease, but I, I, I helped them out because instead of paying rent, I went out drinking and doing drugs and buying cocaine and, um, you know, really uh, you know, wound up getting into a hole. So I finally reached out for help and uh, my sister stepped in and she made sure my bills were paid and got me over to Staten Island where she lives to keep an eye on me. And um, that's where the next part of my story uh, took me. I was on uh, Staten Island. Uh, I wound up uh, losing the job that my buddy had uh, got me, but I got another one at um, a brokerage house in the World Trade Center, Five World Trade. Um, during that time, I was just uh, on Wall Street at that time, people drank and drugged all the time. There were there, there's a guy who would drink wine coolers at his desk. 
uh, and nobody said anything. My uh, boss would come in and uh, he had a bottle of whiskey in his office. He'd always be reeking of whiskey. Um, I've done you know, lines of cocaine off, the, off a VP of a, a, of a Wall Street firm off of his desk. Uh, got to meet some people who are kind of infamous now, uh, who uh, got into some trouble on Wall Street um, and uh, didn't really know them very well, but I got to know them a, a, you know, a little bit, hung out, partied with them and stuff. Um, always people who made more money than I did, which was good because I didn't always have to pay. So I had a lot of uh, free drinks back then, too. Uh, a lot of free Coke. Um, and that's the way that my life was going for a while. Uh, that was in the, uh, the mid to late 80s. Um, at, I would, any point, uh, at any time up to this point, had you ever even thought or even questioned the fact that you might have a problem? Had, had well, that even crossed your mind? We used to sit in a bar. Hold on. And I would ring the bell every time and I think I would laugh. Hold on. We, uh, we, we cut out for a second. I lost you after sure. I had you at, you would sit at a bar. Yeah. I would sit at the bar and do the 20 questions of AI. And um, I would ring the bell every time. Yeah, I'd do the 20 questions and I'd answer uh, always yes, 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 yes. And uh, I said, well, this says I'm an alcoholic, so I might as well order more shots. And then I go in the back, you know, in the bathroom and clear the crud off the top of the toilet bowl and uh, chop some lines out there and do some lines in the back of the toilet and go back and drinking and laugh at it. And this is the way that life went for a while. Um, I would pass out on the subway. I'd wake up at, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning on the, uh, on the R train in Queens with a three piece suit on and, uh, you know, and, uh, my pockets pulled out and no money. <laughs> I don't know if I got robbed or if I spent it probably a little above. Um, and then try to find my way back. And I wanted to go home, crash out for maybe two hours, get up, shower and go back to work, still reeking of booze. And then by lunchtime, I, I'd be out drinking again where I worked in the world trade center. I didn't have to go outside. I could, I could be in that building. It'd be raining, snowing. It doesn't matter. I could uh, go for blocks on the concourse underneath the trade center. And there are a number of bars down there, number of places to drink. But there was one place I did like to go because it was cheap. And that was about a block away from the World Trade Center. It was called um, McCann's. They had this thing called Frank and Stein. <laughs> you get uh, two <laughs> hot dogs and a beer for like $2. And was that was... I was like using my imagination. I was like, I kind of, I kind of already figured where that was going because being a bartender, I'm very familiar with the the term Stein, but I was like, I, w I wasn't a hundred percent sure it was going to be hot dogs, but that's, that's interesting. That's actually pretty clever marketing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was great. That was a great lunch, Frankenstein. And uh, it was very common uh, back then for people to go out at, um, and this is wall street, millions of other people's dollars. I used to have, um, of bear bonds and stock certificates on my desk worth like hundred million dollars. And I'd be plastered, you know, I'd come back from lunch, I'd do shots, I'd drink, I'd be really drunk. Um, and I'd, I'd have to, you know, uh, organize people's accounts and make sure they all balanced in a process their trade, uh, make sure they got credited correctly. Um, and that was my job. Um, and I was not alone. Most of the people there were drunk. 
uh, my alcoholism eventually uh, got me into a, a relationship with a woman who drank and drunk, uh, drank just like I did. Um, and we had a blast together and we basically isolated together. The funny thing was that I was living in the biggest city in the world, the most populous city, one of the most po uh, populous cities in the world um, where there's everything. I mean, you could go into Manhattan, find just about anything you want in the five boroughs. Um, really just in, um, in, in, in Manhattan itself. And, um, on the weekends I used, I would usually stay home with the shades drawn, uh, drinking beer, drinking whiskey or wine or whatever I could get my hands on smoking pot and watching bad TV and afraid to go outside. That's, that, that's where it brought me to at the very end of my drinking, all those adventures and everything else that I had at the end, it brought me to sitting alone in my apartment with the shades drawn, watching bad TV and getting as drunk as possible. And I took a hostage then at the end and uh, I wound up meeting, as I said, met a woman who uh, drank just like I did. And the two of us would drink and drug together and I, uh, isolate. And um, what happened was that um, we met and married uh, within six months. Uh, not a sober breath was drawn between the time I met her and the time we got married. And um, then probably in April of that year or March of that year, she was having trouble with alcohol. Um, she was, um, had disappeared one night and uh, wound up. She uh, worked in Manhattan too, was supposed to take the uh, train to the ferry uh, back home. She never showed up. She had all, um, this is a time, no, this was not the time. She had lost all of her uh, Christmas money before that. But um she had um, she had blacked out and wound up in uh, in Brooklyn somewhere, and was wandering the streets. I think of uh, Bed Stuy, you know, real nice nice part of Brooklyn, waving money around trying to get a taxi at uh, two a.m., two or three o'clock in the morning. And um, fortunately, somebody found her and picked her up. And uh, the guy uh, took her to his home. Gave her some coffee, tried to sober her up a bit, found out where she lived, gave me a call. This is all before cell phones. Gave me a call, and I drove into Brooklyn in the middle of the night to go pick her up. Turns out the guy who found her wandering the streets of uh, Brooklyn uh, was 25 years sober in AA. Wow. And he looked at the two of us and said, you know, there's a better way to live here. You don't have to live this way anymore. And we talked to him for a little while. I thanked him very much. Uh, and then, you know, took her home and we went to a, uh, a, 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 a doctor. The doctor sent us to a uh, psych, uh, psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist looked at her and said, looked at both of us and said, you know, you have trouble with alcohol. Um, it's really best if you, you know, don't drink anymore. Um, try AA, but don't take it too seriously but it seems to work at that time aa was pretty much the only the only game in town uh there were some rehabs that were pretty expensive insurance wasn't always paying for them at that point um so i said try aa don't take it too seriously and here take these and he gave her a handful of batamans take these anytime you uh, feel like drinking you'll be fine and um of course she she loved benzos she loved uh, she she was taking xanax and everything too um, so yeah, this is right down her, her, uh, alley and she actually managed to stay sober for a little while.
and she started going to meetings. And um, I used to drive her to meetings and drop her, uh, drop her off there or wait for her. I wouldn't go inside. Um, and I was thinking that I should probably quit drinking too, just to support her. And so I actually uh, tried to stop drinking several times during uh, really between March and April. Um, so I had, uh, I would quit for a few days. I get antsy and itchy and scratchy and everything and, uh, uh, jittery and shaking. And then I go ahead and drink again. And then I drink a little bit and I say, no, no, I really want to quit this time. And I drink again for, you know, stopping in for a few more days till it got too bad. And I drink again, but I kept drinking less and less. So unknowingly I, I get tapered off. And finally it was in April of 89. I was working at the World Trade Center still, and um, my supervisor needed somebody to uh, take a um, some bearer bonds up to 8th Street, uh, 8th, 8th and Broadway. Now, I'd been a courier at uh, one point, and I was still bonded, so I was still legally bonded, so I was the only person who was able to take these up physically. Um, he didn't want to wait for a company uh, courier because it would have been hours, and this thing needed to be up there right away. So he asked me to go, and I'm like, sure, it's a beautiful spring day. He gave me a, 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 a briefcase, <laughs> handcuffed and everything. Um, and uh, I, I, I went up to 8th Street and the World Trade Center on the, on the subway, uh, delivered the uh, securities. Everything was fine. Um, I walked out. It was a beautiful day. I said, you know what? I, I'm going to walk down to the World Trade Center. I'm going to enjoy this day. And on the way down, I uh, hadn't had a drink for a few days, and I was thinking, you know what, I'm I'm over 21. I was 26 years old. Here I did did this important job. It's a beautiful day, and I've got no no real commitment to sobriety here. Let me just go ahead and have another drink. And I stopped into a, a bodega, and I got a uh, tall boy of Miller Lite. And I often said I wish that my last drink had been a lot more dramatic because there were nights when I got really, really drunk on whiskey and beer and who knows what else and snorted a lot of coke and wound up jumping on the hoods of cars and setting off car alarms, uh, leaning into alleys and screaming, you know, uh, you know, running down the street, uh, literally running down the streets in Manhattan. Um, Lord knows how I never got arrested doing this. Um, but this was my was that, last, time. and that wasn't 5k training, was it? No, it was not 5k <laughs> training. It was running in a suit and tie, jumping onto the hood of a car, setting off the car alarm and taking parking tickets and ripping it up, ripping them up. You know, that was after oh, the Christmas party. You ever, you ever think back how many people probably just got like arrested for no reason? Yeah. Yeah. I think back about that. And I also think how the hell did I never get arrested? That night of the Christmas party, people, uh, two people walked down to the ferry before me and my buddy did. They got robbed. Same route that uh, we took. Ten minutes later, we came down. I was running down the streets, screaming in the alleys, jumping on the hoods of cars, um, making all kinds of noise, being obnoxious, ripping up parking tickets. Didn't get robbed. The people who came ten minutes after us, the same route, they got robbed too. So we figure... That the Your guy behavior. who was robbing, yeah, the guy who was robbing people probably thought the cops are going to show up any minute. I'm not going to go near this, or this guy drank up all of, all, all of his money. It's not worth it. 
Yeah, those people that are acting like that usually they usually don't get robbed for that reason. Like cops, usually, usually that person ends up in trouble because they end up getting beat up or hurt by someone yeah. who potentially owns one of those cars yes. or or something like that. Yeah. Usually, like someone who might not care if the cops come because they're gonna be yeah. like, "Well, this guy started it." Yeah, this, this guy jumped on the hood of my car. And yeah. That might be the only reason you didn't get robbed. So it's like the one time being loud and obnoxious might have benefited you. And if the cops had caught me, I think I would have gotten beat up too, because it was the eighties and it was New York city and they would have been annoyed. Um, but this was my, my, my last drink was that eight, that next April on 89 on about April 11th of 89. And, um, I think it's around the 11th. Um, and, um, got that half a, that, um, 12 boy of Miller light. And I'm walking down. It's got it in the paper bag and everything. And I drank about half of it. I said, here I am drinking again. I got sick to my stomach and I threw it away and have not picked up a, a, a drink since then. I just got to that point where I just didn't want to do this anymore. And I found myself with a with a beer in my hand again after saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And when is this going to end? And I just I want to make sure I didn't miss something because you this might have just misspoke. You said April of 89. Did you mean to say September? No, this is in April. Okay, 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 all right. This is in April of 89. Um, I think it was around, around the 11th. I'm not quite sure. But um, so I decided I wasn't going to go to meetings. I was going to white knuckle it for the whole summer. Um, if I felt like drinking again, or if I did actually drink again, I would go ahead and uh, go to a meeting. Um, I knew about meetings, obviously I was taking my, uh, my, uh, future ex-wife there. Um, but meetings were not for me. I was also going to ask if that ended up being your ex-wife, but I was, I figured you would, I figured you would fill the piece yeah, into that yeah. story. Yeah. I, I'm, You're guiding I'm, us along very, very well. Thank you. So my future ex, ex-wife, I was taking her to meetings. She had a few other incidents during, uh, during that summer where she um, blacked out and wound up in uh, detox units and things. Um, again, rehab wasn't a big thing yet. Um, and uh, that summer, I would hang out with my old friends. I would still go to the bars with people. Um, but we would drink soda. We'd drink it, it's sparkling water. Um, and it wasn't easy. And eventually I, I stopped doing that. And uh, really by August, I was thinking maybe I should try going to meetings. Um, and we did actually go to a open speaker meeting in August of 89. And I heard two guys speak. This is an AA meeting because I'm a 12 step person. Um, so I heard two guys speak. One guy had been in prison for 15 years for manslaughter he had done in a blackout. And he scared wow. the hell out of me, you know, a guy named Sal scared the hell out of me. Boy, I didn't want to, you know, anything to do with this guy and um, decided that I wasn't ready to go to go to this AA yet. So I decided I was going to wait. If I drink again, then I'm going to go ahead and go to AA. Um, and it turns out later on, Sal was a guy who helped me a great deal uh, when my father passed away a few years later. Um he turned out to be a really good guy. But when I first saw him, I was scared to death of him. Um, and then uh, one night, not long after that, I picked up my, uh, my uh, lovely uh, future ex-wife uh, from a meeting. 
and a guy came out and uh, talked to me. Now, guys had talked to me previous times. A guy who was going to be my sponsor came out and talked to me a few times and said, why don't you try going to meetings? Maybe you need to go. And I said, no, no, I, you know, I can't handle it. I'm not drinking. I, it's been months now. And a guy came out and talked to me, and he was uh, knew my brother-in-law, who's a fireman in New York. Um, you know, everyone on Staten Island knows everybody. And um, we were talking about people we knew and talking about work and stuff like that, not really about recovery. And he finally says, why don't you come to a meeting on Monday night? Drop your, drop your wife off at her meeting. You go to this meeting down here in uh, high, off of Highland Boulevard in Great Hills. And just see what it's like. It's a beginner's meeting. I think it'll be good for you to go. And his name was Dennis. They used to have nicknames back then. They called him Silver Dennis because he had silver hair, even though he was a fairly young guy. Um, so I, uh, I uh, went down to that meeting on Monday night. I dropped my, uh, my wife off at, the, um, at her meeting up in Castleton. And then drove down uh, Highland Boulevard in Great Hills. And I remember I had to make a left turn on a Greeley and on the right-hand side of the road, uh, there was a young lady who was in business for herself. She was an a, a, a entrepreneur, you might say. Okay. And um, our listeners was, are pretty smart. Okay. Yeah. She was waving a bottle at Jack Daniels and she looked at me and said, do I want a date? Do you want a date? Come on. Do you want a date? And things had not been going well with my uh, with, with my wife at that point. Um, things were rough, you know, alcoholism and dry drunk and all that good stuff. And um, and I looked at her and said, I do want that date. I would love to have that date. But instead, I turned left and I went down to um, went down to the meeting. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss meeting. Sat down at a small table by myself. I had not had a drink for five months. I was shaking and sweating. I was so nervous. Um, and sat down at, at the table, put my head down like this, picked it up, and the table was filled you know, with all guys. And one guy said, you must be new here. I'm like, how did you know? <laughs> shaking and sweating and all this stuff. He's like, yeah, we just figured it out. Don't remember much about that meeting, but I do remember talking to one of the guys afterwards. And I said, I'm not sure if I really belong here. I haven't had a drink for five months. You know, I've been doing really good about uh, being a, a dry all by myself. And um, he said, well, you know, nobody comes into AA by accident. If you're here, you need to be here. So stay here. Otherwise you can wake up in the gutter again and we'll still be here. Well, why bother? Why not just stay? And I listened to him. I've woken up in the gutter before. I've woken up on the floor of the Port Authority. I've woken up on the subway and the ferry, all kinds of places. So I decided to listen to him and I stayed. And uh, I have not, uh, since that time of coming into the first the AA meeting uh, in, on September 11th of 1989, I have not picked up a drink, uh, not picked up a drug since that time. Very grateful for that. That's so amazing. Now, I do have a... I have a question and sure. so you hadn't physically had a drink since April. Yep. Or any drugs in that time frame either. Did I understand? That I correctly? did take some Xanax. Okay. So was your last Xanax that, that maybe I missed that part. Was your last Xanax oh. like that morning? Cause I was just trying no. to understand, like, I know a lot of people mm -hmm. um, we refer to, and even some people that I've interviewed who, you know, they go through the white knuckling. 
and then mm -hmm. they they decide they can't take it or they feel like maybe they're being a dry drunk, that term we use, and they'll start going to meetings. But as long as they hadn't drank in that time frame, they still claim their recovery date as that original date. So that's why I was just trying to, did you, did, is it because you were taking the Xanax or is it just because you personally choose to use that date because that's when you started going into the rooms? Like, I just I, want to understand that part. Well, I was doing some Xanax during that summer, not a lot, but my okay. ex-wife had tons of it around. Um, and, uh, the main reason I do that is because I don't consider myself sober before I walked into that room. I was, okay. I was dry. Yeah. Like you said, I was dry drunk. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not making judgments on anyone else, but this is for me. No. And, uh -huh. and I completely understand because, and I mean, that's, that's completely your prerogative because, and I mean, it's up to you to decide your clean date. And, you know, and I, I think especially too, you know, how many people are, even if even if we take the Xanax aside, how many people are taking time away from themselves? Usually, mm -hmm. if if anything, you know, if people want to cast judgment, which we shouldn't be doing, but even if someone does want to cast judgment, it's because they feel that someone isn't truly sober and they feel like maybe they have less time because they did this or they did that. I think you might be the first person um, I've ever spoke with who actually did it the other way around who gave themselves a later date because, because of that situation. So, you know, uh, I, I had, yeah, I, I talked to a few of the old timers about it when I, when it first uh, came, uh, came around. I remember there's one guy, um, one guy at the Osceola group down in Philadelphia. This is after I moved to Philly, um, had like 40 some years uh, sober. And he said, no, no, you were sober the day you walked into the AA room. Cause I told him the whole story. The day you walked into that AA room is the day you got sober. But before that, you you were just playing. Okay. So, and then I agree with them. You know, I wasn't I wasn't really committed to it until I came in. There was a big difference for me when I uh, started to work the steps. I and I I definitely respect that, and I I think too, um, and and I always feel the need to throw this disclaimer in there. Uh, this podcast, Stang Fit Odat. We are not affiliated with AA in any way. Um, we, you know, it's what you're hearing right now. These are two people speaking about what works for them. If working a 12-step program works for you, we definitely support that. You know, there are a lot of ways to get clean and sober out there, especially in 2021. There are a lot of online programs. You can see therapists. You can go to your church. You can go to AA, NA. There's smart recovery there are tons of local recovery communities. There are rehabs, whatever the case may be, whatever works for you. I'm not here to judge and say that there's only one way. It's got to be this way. You know, that's I'm, I'm not allowed to say that. And I wouldn't want to anyway, because there's so many people in this world. Whatever works for you, works for you. What you're hearing is two people speaking about what works for them. Uh, for us, in, in this case, AA worked for both of us, is working, you know, however you want to use that term. So with yep. that... With that being said, um, I do uh, let me I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to. I. In 2021, I know that there are a lot of things different about AA now than there are than there were back then. I mm -hmm. know that I have met people in the rooms who have 
tons of years of sobriety. You know, it's, it's specifically, I want to say probably if we're trying to throw a number out there, when I was, when I first started going in three years ago, it's probably the people with 25 years plus are the ones that kind of got in so early on and in such a, an early time frame that things really were different. And back then it almost was the only way because there weren't other options, you know, and, and it, there really wasn't. So I, I completely respect and I understand that mentality because for a lot of people, you know, you didn't have these alternate options out there. And especially with the whole AA, like the anonymous part back then as well was even more important because it was a lot different. It was a lot harder to go around and say, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict because mm-hmm you know, you might, you might lose your job or you might have people looking at you differently. And that's still an issue in today's society, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's less of an issue. And that's, I mean, let's face it. That's also why we're here. That's why we're doing this podcast because guys like you and I, we might be anonymous about other people's recovery and other people's sobriety, but we're not necessarily anonymous about our own because we want to help continue breaking the stigma. We want to help others. We Mm -hmm. want people to know that we're there. If they need someone to talk to, like, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. If you want to reach out, Let's talk. I'll help you in any way I can, you know, whether that's you want someone to go to a meeting with or you just want someone to talk to, whatever the case may be, you know, I'm just going to be here for you and I'm never going to turn anyone away. And so I definitely respect that mentality that you went in with, because I know I know a lot of people who use that and a lot of people newer might not be able to relate to that because they they just face it. we, We weren't around back then. And so I, I like to think that I like to try and be very open-minded and Mm -hmm. really understand where I'm not going to say, no, this isn't, that doesn't work. You got to say it this way, that I I truly understand where that coming from. Being a a CRS, I have, I have learned there is many, many ways to get sober today. And that's great. Whatever works for you is what works for you. I'm not going to cast any uh, judgment on anybody as long as they stay sober and they, they work. I work at a methadone clinic. Um, if those people, if, uh, that's all, all, all it takes for someone to rebuild their lives and not to die from an overdose, God bless them. Yes. Go ahead. You know, I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. I love that you're open-minded about that as well too. Cause I'm sure you would even agree that there are a lot of old timers mm-hmm. in the rooms that just, they say, no, it's gotta be this way or it doesn't count or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. And that is my personal and- only gripe is those some of those people who think that that is the absolute only way. And if you're not doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. Or I have seen not sober or I have seen people get chased out of the meetings yes. because of that. And they get chased out of the meetings and they died. I mean, I'm not being dramatic. They died. No, oh, I trust. Yeah. I, I get it. I get it. Like I, I tell this story all the time. I was, I was ran out of a meeting by someone who said that I wasn't doing it the right way in the beginning because I wasn't doing exactly what he was doing you know, and he had his 50 years sober. And it's like, to this day, I respect that man highly. I love all of his sobriety and there's a lot I can learn from him, but there, and that's, that's the problem too. So we, we definitely, that's, that's my only issue is that like, I luckily had this Facebook group, the staying fit. Oh, that I, I found another way I could turn to people and whatnot, but I think about how many people might not have had that option or, might've went a different route and said, you know, fuck this. Obviously they ran me out. That's not going to work. And like mm-hmm. you said, they go, they go right back to the bar. They go right back to drinking or doing or harder right drugs. Noodle. Noodle. And, and un- unfortunately too. And that's the other problem too, is that we see this all too many times when people get off of it for a while and then they go back 
They mm-hmm. think that they can do what they were doing what back they used then, to do. yeah. and their bodies can't take that anymore. And then, unfortunately, those are the that those are the people that we're hearing that overdosed, and then those are the funerals we're going to, and that's what we're trying to avoid here. So I've 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 closed the casket on a few people who've gone out like that, and it, it, it's heartbreaking. Not pretty, and it's, it's terrifying. If you're here, you need to be here. So stay here. That's what the guy told me in my very first meeting. If you're here, you need to be here. So stay here. The only requirement and uh, AA and again, AA is not the only way to get sober today. It's it, it, it's what worked for me. But they say the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Back in the old days when AA I'm sorry, started, we, we lost connection for one more time. Can you say that one more time? The, the AA said uh, one of the uh, traditions is that the only uh, requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I was totally just messing with you. We got that completely clear the first time. I just wanted to make sure that people in the back heard that. <laughs> and uh, what happened is that in the old days, I did my master's thesis on uh, on the uh, church's response to uh, alcoholism, including the history of uh, some of the history of AA. And um, in the old days, if they had kept all the drunks out of the AA meetings, there'd be nobody there. Everybody who was actively drunk, there'd be no one there. Bill talks about in the big book about... Um, about the hungry drunk standing in the doorway while his wife was cooking dinner, you know, and they, they had people who were drunk in the meetings. Um, and I've been in meetings where uh, uh, I worked in Manhattan when I first got sober and I went into some huge meetings where uh, a, somebody came in who was actually drunk and the seas parted. It's like, Oh my God, there's a drunk in the AA meeting. We have to back away. And I, I backed away too. I was one of those people backing away. Oh my God, it's a drunk. And I had a, a friend of mine with me who basically smacked me and said, what's wrong with you? Don't you know who you are? This was you just a few years ago. And he basically took me by the arm and we got the guy and we took him to a, a beginner's meeting. Um, wow. We can't forget where we are, where we came from. You know, um, a drug is a drug is a drug. I did everything except put a needle in my arm and i didn't do that because i was i was scared away from it by watching people put needles in their arms and nobody looked like they were having a a good time shooting heroin um but a a drug is a drug is a drug and these programs work whether it's smart whether it's dharma whether it's the 12-step groups whether it's iop groups whether it's a church whatever works for you works but nobody should be excluded from what's going to work from them. And so I definitely have a big, um, I have, uh, you know, a, a strong opinion about not keeping people on MAT out of the rooms. Uh, you need to let them get sober and uh, work, work their program. I love it. I love it that you're a, a quote unquote old timer who, who really understands today though. I, I really love that. Cause I think, I think that helps you, be able to relate to a lot of, a lot of newcomers. And, you know, that, that warms my heart and it gives me chills to think about, because I know that like anybody who is fresh off the streets, um, anybody who just even shows the slightest bit of desire is going to get nothing but uh, hugs and love and, and answers from you and, and just, and help. And it's, it's not just going to be a, listen to me, do exactly this, do as I say, Otherwise, like they're going to they're they're going to get options, if you would. And and I love that because you're just you just want you, you just want to see people 
get better. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be the way you did it. Like you said, yeah. it, that, that works for you. It's the working for it, you and shit, but the way I did it may not work for every, everyone else. I love it. And that's and th fine. And that, that part of the training is a, as a certified recovery uh, specialist has really helped to open up my mind. That's, you know, that's so work. beautiful. Now, one, another really interesting factor about your story too, as if there's not like a million of them, but your sobriety date is 9-11. It is. It's 9-11-1989. And your first meeting, and this is the part two that I heard this and I was like, holy shit, we got to get you on the podcast. Your first meeting is, tell them where. No, my first meeting was in Staten Island. Okay, I'm sorry. Really, the first place I read how it works. Okay, okay. Was at the Tower Group, One World Trade. There was a meeting about halfway up um, uh, the uh, tower. Beautiful, uh, beautiful view. This kind of ugly room, but beautiful view. And uh, that's the first time they asked me to read how it works was up at the Tower Group, probably about two weeks in. So it would have been the end of September of 1989. That's just insane to think about, like, just no matter, no matter what part, of, like early on in your sobriety, you're going, you're going to meetings in, in the world trade center, a building that's no longer there. there. Now, well, on I used to, I, I would, I would also go to meetings at 74 below down at Trinity church. And uh, that's the one that I went to most of the time. The funny thing was that when I first went there, I was afraid that people from my office would see me. And it turned out that half of my office was at that meeting. The other half was out at the bars drinking. There are very few people who didn't do either. And when I walked in for the first time and realized I knew all these people there, one of my coworkers turned around and looked at me and said, well, it's about time and put his hand out. Welcome. Me. Wow. That's, oh man, that's, that's an emotion. What was it like? What was it like when, when 9-11 happened, just seeing like being being that you were like working in New York and like, you know, you had like a lot of close ties to that building, obviously. And it's such a oh. I can only imagine like how that felt for you, like an early part of your sobriety. Like, I know oh, I just drive actually... by and like if I lost a building, like if a church that I started going to even got torn down, it would it would break my heart if that's where I was at in early sobriety. So what was it like when 9-11 well, happened for you? I was 12 years sober when it happened. So, and 9-11 uh, happened, I was 12 years sober. Um, I really didn't know too many people in the building anymore. The people had moved on. Um, and I was working down at uh, Etna in uh, Bluebell. So I wasn't near the building. I was, I was on the train in 93. I was on the four train. Uh, when I um, was it for, might've been the end of the R train, but I heard the explosion in 93 when the bomb went off in the, uh, in, in the parking garage. And I knew people there then. A lot of those people said, I'm getting a new job. <laughs> I'm not going to stay here. And uh, they're probably very grateful they did that. But it was scary when 9-11 uh, happened. Um, you know, the building that I had worked in had been blown up. My uh, brother-in-law is retired fire New York City firefighter. Um, uh, I knew a lot of firefighters who were still active. A lot of guys who've been retired who went back. Um, I had family who was actually at the, at the site when it happened. Um, my niece was in seven world trade and had been evacuated, was going up to Midtown. And my nephew was coming to pick her up um, uh, to take her to the airport for a conference on terrorism in Little Rock. 
and he was walking up to the uh, one of the towers when the second plane hit. And the plane hit and all kinds of debris started coming down. He turned and he ran and was able to get into a deli next to the bar where I used to do the 20 questions. He ran into a deli there and the front was covered by debris. He had to climb out the back and jump on the last ferry back to uh, Staten Island um, to uh, get home. Um, and now today he's a, uh, he's been in the fire department for about 10, 12 years and he's a highly uh, decorated firefighter. So it's really, you know, touched a lot of people's lives, but it was really interesting for me to go back and to see this building where I worked and have it just in rubble. But the one thing that was interesting to me in, in regard to my recovery, remember I'm 12 years sober, horrible tragedy has happened. I was there about 10 days later. I wanted to see it for myself. It was still smoking until that horrible smell was in the air. People were walking around shocked. And I walked down the block and went to Nassau Street, which is a uh, like a, 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 a pedestrian mall. But there's tons of bars down there. And that's really all there were, just a lot of bars. And um, the bars were open. And the doors were open, the, 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 um, the entertainers were still there, the young ladies were still out there calling people in. And I'm like, a block, two blocks away is the most horrible tragedy that you could ever imagine. And the bars are still open on Nassau Street. I'm 12 years sober and I looked at those bars and it's like they were calling to me. It was like I'd never left. It's like, wow. I, it, like I said, it was like I'd never left. Um, it was people, places, and things. And it was just so weird that here I was in the midst of this tragedy. And I'm thinking, gee, I can go down here and get a beer. You know, it's just weird how my, uh, how my alcoholism just spoke to me that day. And I, 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 I turned around and I left. It's but a reminder it that it never, it, never, it never stops. You're, you know, and especially too, because this is a fitness-related podcast, it's a, it's a nice reminder that our, our disease is always doing push-ups and it's just waiting mm -hmm. for us to fuck up and bring us yeah. right back in. Uh, I, believe, I believe that we're hardwired to drink. Last, last question I got on that yeah. topic um, and before we really start getting into fitness here, did mm -hmm. you find it hard for yourself to celebrate your sober birthday, at least for the next couple of years, being that it's like also such a tragic day, like in today's society, especially with social media, like, mm -hmm. you know, you go on Facebook and you say, you know, today I have so many years and maybe you take a picture of your coin or, mm -hmm. you know, people like with, yeah. with my really good friend who just celebrated five years, we go out to dinner, post a picture of everybody. Did you find it hard to be able to do something like that for a while without making it feel like shit? There's, I know there's so many people that are mourning this day and I don't want to like, how was that's gotta be an awkward situation. It was, it was really only hard the first day. I mean, the day that it happened, I did not put my hand up to say, this is my anniversary today. Okay. Um, I did do that a few days later at a meeting that I've been to all the time, but I was going to a meeting at, um, went to a lunchtime meeting that day. It was very somber and people were talking about the tragedy. I wasn't about to put my hand up and say, Hey, it's my anniversary today. Hooray. <laughs> but the next year wasn't too bad. And I, I want to have something to celebrate about that day. Okay. That's a great and way I, to look at it. And I thought, I'm not going to let them take that day away from me. I worked really hard to have that day. And so every year on social media now, what I do is I 
just what you said, I post a picture of the coin. And I'm very proud of that. Um, and I want to have something to celebrate. Also post something something about 9-11 uh, as well, because I do know some uh, people who didn't make it. Um, and I know out of respect for my brother-in-law, my nephew, people who are firefighters who knew people who died that day. You know, I don't, don't get crazy about it, but you know, I want, I want to celebrate that day because I earned it. Absolutely. And I, you, you definitely did. So now I want to get into talking about the other part of why we're here. You know, the, the fitness part, um, you're definitely a, a beast there as well. Uh, when, when I met you, you were, uh, you were getting the bike out. It was when we were training Carrie for the 5k and the couch, the 5k. And I had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, a few weeks before we wrapped up and you got the bike out and you were going out, putting in your miles. And, you know, that's when we started talking about all the, all the stuff you've done with, with biking and, and the long rides and the races and whatnot. So why don't you kind of tell us uh, a little bit about your, your biking career and what that does yeah. for you, how it helps with with your sobriety and how those things kind of intertwine it all for you. Well, as I referred to before, I have a, I had a, have an ex-wife now. Um, and, uh, all that is tied in together, uh, through the course of my sobriety course, there's been a lot of changes. I've been sober longer than I was alive. Um, you know, before coming into, uh, um, recovery. I busted your and, balls in this. You've been sober almost as long as I've been alive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm only 34. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I've worked with people who are only 30. So they've been sober longer than they've been alive. I love it. Um, I love it too. I think it's great. Um, but I don't ever want to forget that I'm not cured. I can pick up as easily as anyone else can. And I need to keep uh, paying attention to my sobriety, which is where the cycling comes in, the, the bicycle riding. Um, when I did, uh, did wind up getting divorced. I won't go into the details. Uh, uh, no divorce is pretty. Mine definitely, definitely wasn't. I, I will say today that my ex-wife and I get along. We're friendly. I don't hold any animosity towards her at this point. Um, but it you know, took a lot of work to get there. Um, but in terms of the cycling, when I remember when my ex and I did split up, I became a single parent. My daughter was only two and a half at that time. Um, and uh, due to circumstances going on uh, with, with, with her mother, I, uh, I took custody and did not have a whole lot of time to myself. I was also going through a horrible divorce. I was um, finishing up graduate school. One of the gifts of uh, sobriety is that I was able to go back to graduate school. I had worked on Wall Street and then I moved to publishing after I got sober. And then I uh, decided I had to call in to go to seminary, becoming a minister. And so I came to Philadelphia to go to seminary. And um, unfortunately, at the very end of that process, I had a few horrible things happen. Um, my marriage fell apart due to uh, infidelity. It was not mine. Um, I became a single parent, which was not horrible, but was stressful. My older brother was killed in a car accident that same summer. Um, so all these things happened at once. Um, and also was told that um, while I was in graduate school, I was going to graduate. They basically told me, you're going to have to wait a while. Now I'm still waiting. That was 1996 um, for me to move forward with anything. 
So I knew that that career was pretty much gone. So I'd uh, given up my whole, my whole life, my whole career, everything. Uh, I moved down to Philadelphia from uh, Staten Island and it was all going to, going to shit. Um, and I needed stress relief. I was in counseling. I was going to a lot of meetings and, uh, I wound up with a summer where I was not working. I had enough money. I didn't have to work and uh, had too much time on my hands and I had an old bicycle. And so I got the old bicycle. I tuned it up. I started riding and I started riding and I started riding, and started riding. And this is an old bike. Um, probably about six, seven years old at that point was not a very good bike when it was new. And a friend of mine in the rooms had a bike shop and I started uh, seeing him at, at the meetings and started talking about, gee, I'm doing all this bike riding. This bike kind of sucks. And he said, come down to the bike shop. And he took me down to the basement and I got a nice uh, diamond pack. Uh, this was in 1997. And it's a 96 diamond back. And he gave it to me for a really good price. He showed me out back of the stores, the Perky Umman Trail. <laughs> and he sold me a, a bike rack for the car. And uh, what I started doing, excuse me, what I started doing was um, riding not only on the Perky on the trail, but also started riding from my house in East Greenville. And I started, um, I uh, started going on a loop from my house all the way through into Red Hill, down into Mar uh, Marlboro um, uh, Township, um, back on some back roads, almost into um, Trumbowersville. And then up Trumbowers, uh, up uh, Allentown Road, uh, all the way up Allentown Road across 663 and back over to West Swamp. And then I came back from West Swamp through Spinnerstown, back over to um, where I lived in East Greenville. And that was about 28 miles. So I started off riding, you know, 10 miles, five miles, 10 miles. And building up and building up, I got 14 miles one day. And then I met up with a friend of mine who showed me this route. And I followed her on that route and I said, hey, I can do this. And I started doing that route every day, about 28 miles a day during the summer of 97. And it's a great way to reduce stress. 28 miles a day, every day. That's a lot. 28 miles a day, uh, probably about five, five, five days a week. That's probably, and, then, and even if you're pushing hard, that's probably what a two hours or so ride two, about two and, and a half, half hours. hours three and a half, two and a half okay. hours it's hills lots of hills okay so about three and a half to four hours a day and then um i would do that while while my daughter was in daycare um so that was my therapy i was going to a therapist i was going to meetings uh i was uh, you know work uh, working with i didn't have have a sponsor but i had a guy who i used as a sponsor and working with him and doing four step work and all kinds of stuff. And um, <clears throat> really getting into these long bike rides. And then of course, in uh, the fall of 97, I had to finally get a job. <laughs> I couldn't go for the bike rides anymore, but I, uh, I, I kept up uh, riding the bikes on the weekends. I would do uh, you know, 10, 20, 15 miles on the weekends when I could, especially when my daughter wasn't with me at that point, I wasn't dating anybody basically raising my daughter and I would do that whenever I could. Um, sometimes it'd be, you know, in the, in the evening, I'd just do a 10, 11 mile ride. But the, the, the bicycle riding was a way of blowing off stress. It's a way of getting my head on straight. It is a way of, uh, you know, part of my uh, re recovery journey because I really, um, 
needed to get that physical act, activity going. And earlier on in my sobriety, <clears throat> very early on, um, during that five months that I was not drinking but not going to meetings, I put on about 50 pounds. Because uh, back then, uh, Ben and Jerry's was a big thing. It was just coming out. <laughs> and I lived near Entenmann's Bake Shop and I was 26. And um, that went on until I was about a year sober in 1990. And my sponsor at that time sent me to the gym with a guy who was powerlifting champion of uh, Staten Island. And he was 49 and I was 27 and he about killed me. Um, but I lost the weight within six months. That gave me a full taste of uh, you know, getting into fitness. This is something I really want to do. And I'd always ridden my bike ever since I was a kid, off and on. And um, so that's why in 97, when I went through the divorce, the bike riding really hit me. And I just stuck with it. Um, I'd go on the weekends. I'd go at night after work. I'd go, you know, my daughter was with her mom. Um, later on, let's see, later on, I would uh, bike ride when... Um, when my daughter wound up uh, uh, becoming a heroin addict herself, I would go out and ride bike over to the park. I live near Green Lane Park and just go there and scream at the lake. Um, so the cycling there, again, there's like I can feel the tension in, in my body. It just blew all that tension away from me. And also, top of everything else, help, help me feel better. I have, um, uh, as a child, as I said, I was uh, beaten uh, almost to death. <clears throat> and I have aches and pains all over my body. I have arthritis everywhere. And uh, the doctor told me the best thing to do is to keep moving. And the bicycle is a great way for me to keep moving. It's, um, it's a, uh, you know, low impact unless I run into a tree or a car or something. Um, and everything moves. My arms move, my shoulders move, my legs move, my knees, my hips ankles, everything moves. Um, a few years ago, well, 20 years ago, I, uh, I was roller skating with my daughter and fell and snapped my ankle in three places. And, I wish uh, I didn't know what that was like. <clears throat> yeah. Well, this was very painful. I had the roller skates on and, it was, uh, and the, uh, the wheels were touching my calf. Oh my God. <clears throat> and Ow. I never skated again. This is in 1998. I never skated again. Um, however, if that had been on the bicycle, I would have got right back on the bicycle because I just love it that much. Fucking ankles suck. Skating. They do. God, I have, um, I have titanium pins in my ankle. Oh, pins in a strip. But the first thing I did as soon as I could walk again was I went to the uh, gym where I worked and got on the exercise bike. And uh, no, no resistance and did physical therapy that way, just riding the bike over and over again. Couldn't even put a whole lot of weight on it yet. But I wanted to get back on the bicycle because it meant that, that, that much to me. It's a great feeling, whether I'm on the trail, like the Perky Umman Trail is on there on Saturday. I, did, uh, I only did about uh, 10 miles on Saturday. But riding down the trail with the wind in my face and the trees and the sunlight, and it was one of the last warm days it was really beautiful out there. And it's a way to connect that I don't get when I'm driving in the car. I like to hike as well. And that's really great because I'm down there on the ground and I can stop and look at things with the bike. It's always about the movement. I, uh, some people like, I like to stop and look around. I like to keep going, you know, and, uh, get, get a good workout, but it's a great feeling when I get done. It's like, 
I did it. You have a little bit of asthma that helps with the asthma. Um, that helps as, as I said, with, with the, the, uh, the arthritis. Uh, I used to throw my back out a, a couple of times a year. I haven't done that now for a while since I've lost weight. <clears throat> and um, the bike really help, helps with my head and my mind and my body. Um, a few years ago in 2014, I uh, slipped on the ice um, and shattered my elbow. And up until that time, I was riding the bike about 10 miles a day, five to 10 miles a day. Even during the winter, I had winter gear on and stuff, unless it was really icy and snowy. And slipped on the ice and I shattered my elbow. So on, uh, on this side, I have a titanium elbow on tight and a titanium ankle. And it took me a few years to get back on the bicycle again. And the thing was just uh, gathering dust. Now, the, the diamond back I wound up giving to my older brother who lives in the Poconos, and I got a Cannondale uh, back in uh, 2007. And it's a beautiful bike. I love it. Um, I take real good care of it. Um, Is that the one that you still have? Is that the one that I've seen you on? Yep. That's the one I still have. That's a 90, uh, that's a 2007. And um, I have a really good bike shop nearby that uh, works on it all the time. It's, uh, it's uh, called the uh, Bike and Soul up in East Greenville. And, um, and they're great and they do a great work on it. They did a tune up on it last year for like bucks. And it's a, uh, it's a charity program. So they teach kids how to work on bikes. And it's oh, that's cool. And it's called bike and soul. And they keep, keep this thing running from, so I had not been on the bike for a couple of years up until last year, because I have bad shoulder. My elbow is at the titanium in it and it was painful. And um, after a bad breakup in the beginning of last year, I found myself again at one of those points where what do I do, uh, do with myself now? I had been with somebody for 13 years and uh, it just, well, no uh, break, breakup is good. <laughs> There's no good breakup, but I've been with somebody for a long time and, um, and it was painful and it forced me, I had a choice. I could be miserable and just get into my own head and isolate. And whenever I'm doing that, I'm going towards a drink or I could get busy and start looking at how to improve myself. And I got busy and started looking at how, how I can improve myself. I'd put on weight. I'd slacked up on meetings and things like that. So what I did is I started going to more meetings. I got back into therapy and I dusted off the bike. And I uh, started to go out and ride again and realized that my elbow wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And started riding more and more. Um, of course, the bike hadn't been ridden for a while, had some problems. So I took it to Bike Console and they fixed it up. And now today I'm uh, riding, uh, still riding about three or four times a week uh, as I can. Riding uh, the other day on Saturday, just did 10 miles. I don't do the 28, 30 mile bike rides the way I used to. So I probably could if I had to. I wanted to. Or if I had What's to your ride. longest ride to date? My longest ride to date that I've ever done has been 75 miles. Oh, shit. That was a few years ago. Now, usually I ride about uh, 14, 15 miles. That's the longest rides that I do now. I don't do 20 miles anymore, but I still go hiking and uh, get out with sink and do a uh, uh, of hiking and uh, did some kayaking, paddle boarding. I'm learning to do that now. Um, 
but bicycle riding has always been my uh, not, not, not number one. Yeah. With the 5K you guys did, I uh, teased Carrie as to whether or not I could uh, take my bicycle and follow along with you guys. <laughs> Probably could have. Probably could have. But. I, I also think it'd be funny to point out to our listeners that I just got yelled at by my three-year-old son when I commented and uh, about your 75-mile ride. I just heard him yell from the side, don't say that, Daddy. So <laughs> that was he, a good boy. He, yeah, he, he knows the bad yeah. words. Yeah, he's a good boy. But... <laughs> Fitness and, uh, you know, ex- exercising, whether it's going to the gym, because I've gone to the gym many times during uh, sobriety from that first time when my sponsor sent me to when I worked at that. Uh, we, we had a company gym and I go down and lift weights and uh, do the machines and uh, do the stationary bikes during lunch to what I do now, which is uh, ride the bike whenever I can. It's, it's all part of keeping my head straight and keeping my... Uh, sobriety on track you know I'm, I'm not much for meditation and uh i've tried and we'll still try that again to meditate and sit still and focus on on a few things or on one thing um but when i'm riding i have to focus on what i'm doing on the bicycle i have to focus on keeping the bicycle upright i have to focus on what's in front of me in uh in the road or is there a pothole is there a dog is is there a three-year-old? Um, is there a horse? You know, is there a car? Uh, so I have to keep focused on how what my body is doing in terms of pumping the bike because I'm the engine, and I have to keep focusing on what I'm riding into, and on keeping the bike steady. And I can focus on the world that's going on around me. I don't wear headphones when I ride because I like to hear what's happening. Not only do I like to hear if there's a car coming up behind me, I like to hear when I'm on the trail, like the birds like the sounds of the dogs or the kids playing. All that stuff is fun. Uh, the other day I was uh, ride down, um, rode down from uh, uh, Green Lane Park down to uh, Spring Mount and they had, a, uh, they had a band down at Spring Mount, which was really neat. And I got to hear that. In the past when I've gone down the uh, Perthium and Trail, um, I've uh, gone by the uh, Folk Fest and I've been able to hear that music. You know, it's all kinds of neat stuff. I've seen birds out there, uh, like eagles and hawks. Uh, I've seen foxes on uh, on the trail. Helped somebody uh, track down a uh, lost dog one time. Helped uh, people who have had flat tires. Um, helped people who have fallen. Um, there's all kinds of you know interesting things on the trail. Meet people I know on the trail. Um, the Perkinsman Trail is a, a great a resource. Um, but also is uh, for me, I also drive on the roads and on the back alleys and I wind up seeing people that uh, I know there too. There's a friend of mine, Bruce, who lives over in uh, Red Hill, a few, um, a, a few towns over from me. And I like to ride my bike o- over by his house. And sometimes I'll see him hanging out by his uh, pickup truck, talking to somebody and have a, a, a nice uh, conversation. Um, you know, and the bike brings you right down to earth and right down with the, uh, with the regular people, you know, with everybody else on the ground. It's a great feeling. You're not isolated. Too bad you weren't on the trail two weeks ago and I broke my ankle. Maybe you could have gave me a ride back to the car. I could have. Yeah. But which (laughs) trail uh, were you on? Salkin. Salkin. Salkin trail is a nice trail. I like that trail too. But yeah, yeah. I I was, I brag how it's like so smooth and you can see things in front of you until I step on something like a jackass. Well, there was, um, I know that trail had the uh, the uh, fresh um, cinders, 
put down too. That was a little slip, uh, slippery. I almost, uh, almost bought it there uh, a few weeks ago, getting those uh, fresh uh, cinders. The bike tires start going this way and that way. Yeah, I don't know what I, I stepped on. It was like an, a, an apple or a walnut. I stepped on something that took me Probably off. Probably a walnut. Probably. Uh, I rode over one of those the uh, the other day. And, well, almost went over. So. Uh, yeah, those, those things, things are, are dangerous. Yeah, they are. Now my now my ankle paid for it. But <laughs> well, the, the neat thing that, that there were a, a couple of kids on the Perkyoman Trail the other day who used sticks to um to sweep off the. Uh, the uh, leaves and all the walnuts and stuff from the trail. That's cool. Yeah. So that's awesome. So I thank them for that. Yeah, for um, sure. What sobriety's done is to help me to open up my whole life. Um, thousands of possibilities. And the neat thing is that I can restart my, my sobriety at any time without picking up a drink. Um, you know, I used to work on Wall Street, then I decided to make a change and go work in publishing. Then I decided to go uh, back to graduate school. Um, then I decided I didn't want to be married anymore. So I became a single parent and a divorced person. Um, brought me into many different relationships, got me to know a lot of different people like you, like Carrie, uh, like Bear. Um, and uh Brought me into a lot of different careers and job opportunities. Um, a lot of experiences I never would have had if I had never gotten sober. Um, I never heard of, you know, or, um, East Greenville, where, where I live now. Never heard of that town before I moved there. Uh, you know, never heard of, uh, you know, Fogelsville. Never heard of, you know, all these towns up here. Um where I'm now spending a, a, a lot of my time. I didn't know this part of Pennsylvania existed. I thought it was Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And the rest <laughs> was kind of like, you know, a black hole. Um, so, and that's what sobriety did for me. It, uh, it allowed me to try different things, to make mistakes, even allowed me to fall and get hurt and then pick myself back up. You know, I broke my ankle in uh, three places. Clean uh, across, had surgery and everything, and um, that was in that was in September of 1998. In June, uh, July of 1999, I did a 70 mile bike ride. Wow! So, so you know, we we do do come back from these things for sure. We do recover. Yeah, we do recover. We do come back, and that's what our 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 recovery does for us. It allows us to come back, make mistakes. It allows us to fail, allows us to fall and get back up again and fix ourselves and get better. Um, that's the that's the real gift. And the gift is that we don't do it alone. We've got people here to support us no matter what happens. For sure. Before I hit you with my last question mm -hmm. is, I don't want to forget to give you this opportunity. Um, I, I usually give our guests a chance to plug anything. A lot of times um, we have people that are either entrepreneurs in business for themselves on social media, whatever the case may be. So if there's anything you want to plug, any social media outlets, any businesses, organizations, companies, anyone that has been helpful to you or helping others, you know, whatever the case may be, if there's anything that you want to plug, um, now is definitely an opportunity okay. for you. Well, there's Sync, Sync Recovery, which has been a great organization and has really helped me to restart my program in the last year. 
a lot of activities like bike riding. Uh, there is going to be a, another bike ride coming up on November, I think November 5th or no, November 6th. And that's going to be on the Perth Yeoman Trail. And that'll be on November 6th. Um, and there'll be some more details on the, um, on the uh, sink, sink recovery site. Uh, and that's uh, synchronicityrecovery.org, I think. Um, and, and I also volunteer with something called uh, Project Live Upper Perk. And you can find that online at projectliveup.org. And uh, we're working to break the stigma of drug addiction and alcoholism in the Upper Perkium and Valley in uh, Upper Mont Montgomery County. Um, we do recovery meetings on Thursday nights at seven o'clock in East Greenville, across from the uh, fourth and fifth grade center, right near the Walmart on Jefferson Street. Um, anybody is welcome, open to all avenues of, uh, re of, of recovery. We also do a lot of, um, we're also doing a, a 5K that's coming up in November, and that's on our Facebook site. And that's uh, Upper Perk, uh, I'm sorry, that's uh, Project Live Upper Perk. Facebook site. We have a 5K coming up on uh, November 14th, and that's going for charity, uh, mostly to uh, uh, so support our, our efforts in Project Live and also something called Open Link, which um, uh, provides GED training, uh, provides food pantry um, and food services to people, job training, a lot of really neat stuff in the upper Perkiomen Valley. Um, the other thing I'd like to promote uh, for myself is I do have a book that I wrote. It's a self-published. So, so we all know a self-published book is really like the best kind of book there can be. And it's called um, uh, On Anvils of Experience. It tells all these stories that I've told here and a lot more about um, addiction, recovery, um, and also about what it's like to have somebody in your life to be struggling with addiction and uh, recovery. Because I've had, not only am I sober myself, I've worked with my, you know, my, my ex-wife who has struggled with her sobriety as well. And uh, of course, she, I believe, is sober several years now, which is great. And my daughter, who's uh, also struggled with her uh, addictions, uh, and she's also sober about six, seven years now. Um, wow. And I've written a, a bunch of essays about uh, what it's like to not only live as an alcoholic and live as a person in recovery, but also to live with people who are struggling. And uh, so something for the families as well, because I think families uh, often tend to get overlooked sometimes or they feel, well, it's not my problem, so I don't have to deal with it. But the families are just as sick as the alcoholic and the addict. They're, uh, they're affected by this as much uh, as, uh, as, um, as the addict is, as, as the alcoholic is. So I couldn't agree with you more. Now, for our listeners, where can they find this book? That book is on Amazon. It's um, an on Anvils of Experience. On Anvils of Experience. On Anvils of Experience. My name is David Lintabet, and it, uh, you can look it up by looking up my name. Good well, we'll also it. get the uh, we'll get the link here in the uh, the show yep. notes for you as well. Mm -hmm. um, we'll have all of the information. We'll have, right. you know, any anything, anything that you just mentioned that has a website and a link that is comfortable being out to the public. Anything you send me, I'll make sure I put in the show notes. So that right. way, you know, when our listeners are hearing to this end part, if anything that you just said resonates with them, 
and and they can get some value from it. All they'll have to do is just click in the show notes and they'll be able to Great. continue their searching. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully support a self-published author, you know, continue to get his story out. And why not? Let's why not throw a few pennies in the man's pocket as well when he took the time to, to write the story. Just um, uh, full disclosure, if, if anybody is uh, does buy that book, uh, I get 50 percent of all proceeds to Project Live. Oh, you just made that even more support. I love it. I love it. Uh, you can definitely, well, you definitely sold at least one book right here. Thank um, you. Yeah, I, I suck. I usually only do audio books, but just for the fact off of pure support as well, I'm definitely going to need a book. Um, so with that being said, usually the last question I ask our guest for, for our listeners out there, for the listener who might still be struggling today, might might still be drinking or or drugging or using and they're looking for a reason to put that drink or that drug down today or for the listener who might be clean and sober today but is thinking about picking up a drink or a drug for those people what can you dave with 32 years of phenomenal wonderful sobriety what can you say to this person uh that'll help them either put the drink or the drug down or not pick it up today dave Pick up the thousand pound phone, call somebody, call somebody, ask for help. If you're thinking of picking up a drink, think it through. Where, where, where are you going to be at the other end of that drink, of that drug? I believe that I'm hardwired to drink and drug. It's in my DNA. It's in my brain chemistry. I don't do it because I know I, I, I was taught to think it through. Where am I going to be at the other end of this? And it's no place good. Never going to solve any problems, but if you're really struggling and you're really thinking that, you know, that a drink or drug is, is the answer for you, pick up the thousand pound phone, call somebody, text somebody, ask for help, get to a meeting, do something, get out of your own head, because believe me, it's not worth it. I've never heard anybody come back from picking up a drink saying who had been sober and they picked up the drink, never heard anybody coming back and say, hey, that was great. What a waste of time that was being sober. What I have seen, as I said, is I've seen those people who went out and thought that they could drink successfully. The last time I saw them was when I closed the lid on their coffin. I don't want to do that with anyone else today. Thanks. That is very powerful stuff right there. Just unbelievable. Um, so you heard it here listeners words of wisdom this man has 32 years of sobriety and as as you heard us talk about before he knows that there are more more than one way he knows there's more than one path so you know this is this you can definitely believe what he's saying take it take it to heart take it in soak it in listen to this man he knows what he's talking about he's great to be around he is wonderful support he is very motivational very inspiring and just an all-around great dude. I'm so fortunate to have had a chance to actually meet you in person uh, before doing this interview, and it's just it's just made this all the better. Thank you for being flexible with us today. Thank you. This has been a rough week for us both trying to get things scheduled. Um, lots of injuries. Pretty much everybody that that trained for the couch to 5K is pretty much banged up right now. So we're all we're all trying to get back to normal. But you know, it's it's awesome people like you that also help us get get through this. Uh, Carrie, I see you hobbling around in the background. 
Love you, girl. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're feeling better. Happy to see you. Uh, with that being said, then, on behalf of everybody with the Staying Fit ODAC community, everybody out there on all of our social media outlets, all of our listeners in all 23 countries that have downloads on this podcast, and everybody on the Facebook page where this all started, Dave, we, we want to thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We want you to continue staying thank healthy, you. continue staying fit. And Dave, tell us how you're doing it, brother. One day at a time. I absolutely love it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit Odette. If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at StayingFitODAAT. You can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at StayingFitODAAT at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time.